morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, we're going to go into the first two verses. And uh, forgive me this morning, I'm uh, still getting over being sick this week and my voice isn't exactly where it needs to be. Ashley's still at home mending herself. Chad's traveling back with the family from Pennsylvania, so just keep everyone in your prayers right now. Um, Again, we're going to be uh, going through God's Word this morning in Ephesians, verses 1 and 2. Uh, If you will, stand with me and we'll read these verses. Therefore, be imitators of God, as dearly loved children, and walk in love. As Christ also loved us and gave himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. You may be seated. See, to understand why Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians, we need to understand the city of Ephesus. Uh, it was considered to be one of the most successful cities in all of Asia because of the many land and seaports that were surrounding it. So what that means is there was a huge amount of trade that took place in the city of Ephesus that caused the place to just flourish with people, and we know wherever there's people, sin will abound. So because of all that and the influx of people, the worldly things started seeping in, and Paul felt it was important to write the church in Ephesus to warn them against being sucked back into that same lifestyle that they had come out of when they came to know Jesus Christ. You see, the reason Paul is writing to the Ephesians and to us here is because it's an ever-present danger. Just because we identify as Christians, just because we are saved by God's grace, doesn't mean we can't fall back into sin. We all know that just because you're Christian, that doesn't mean you can go back and live the life you live, lived before you were a Christian. But if you were saved by God's grace through the sacrifice of, son, of His Son, why would you want to? So there's a very real possibility for all of us that if we're going to live close to that proverbial edge and the influence of our lives is coming more from the world than it is from the Word, then we're going to be drawn back to our old sinful ways. And it's simple as that. It's a very elementary equation. Where's the greatest influence in your life coming from? Where's the greatest impact? Who are you hanging with? Who are you surrounding yourself with? What are you devoting your time to? The old saying goes, guilty by association. And whoever we're hanging with or whatever we're spending our time on, we have a tendency to kind of adopt their ways or adopt their words, their actions, and so forth. So to clarify this warning, Paul begins by saying, therefore, which means that Paul's about to make a statement based on something he's previously said. So if you have your Bibles, turn back a page or two to Ephesians chapter 4. And beginning in verse 17, we find that we're to put off the old self and put on new self that is being made in the image of Christ and live and walk out the reality of a new person that is living in and for him. Ephesians 4, beginning at verse 17. Therefore I say this and testify in the Lord. You should no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thoughts. They are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God, because of their ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. They became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity, and with the desire for more and more. 
But that is not how you came to know Christ. Assuming you heard about him and were taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus. To take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, the one according to God's likeness, and the righteousness and purity of the truth. Therefore, putting away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. Let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he is to do honest work with his own hands, so that he has something to share with everyone in need. No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building someone up in need, so that it gives grace to those who hear. And don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by Him for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander, be removed from you along with all malice. And be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgive one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. You see, I go back and I share that because that sets the tone for what Paul's talking about, what we're going to be speaking on this morning. So since we've established now the therefore, Paul now goes on to say in verse 1 in chapter 5, Be imitators of God as dearly loved children. And let that sink in for a moment. Be imitators of God. It's such an easy thing to read, but very hard to walk out. We're almost hit with a surprising unbelief. Did did Paul just tell us to imitate God? It's a pretty tall order. But when we are seasoned to imitating other people, but to imitate God, let's be serious for a moment. Let's start to think about this for a moment. Begin to remember what imitate means. To imitate is a verb or action that means to take or follow as a model, to copy, such as a person's speech or mannerisms. Now, we should all know that if you spend a lot of time in the world, you're going to imitate the world. And on the flip side of that coin, if we devote our time to the Lord and spend time in His Word, we will begin imitating Him. When we focus on the Lord and spend time in His Word and soaking in His Word and allowing that Word to bathe our hearts, it's going to be easier to imitate Him. If all that sounds still too steep, read on in God's Word, beginning in verse 2. Paul says, and walk in love. So this is where imitation comes into play. He says here, and notice these words, as Christ and walk in love, as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. This is the first way Paul wants to imitate God. And it's usually what we're going, and it's what we're focusing on this morning. He says here that, He wants us to imitate God, but then refers to Jesus. And that itself will will preach, because inherently he's speaking of the deity of Jesus Christ. This, you know, declaration of his deity. So imitate God, how? By following Jesus and doing what he did. He says, as Christ loved you or us, we are to imitate that kind of love with others. And how did Christ love us? He goes on to say he gave himself up for us. 
And that means he loved us sacrificially. Jesus sacrificed himself in order to show us his love. And Paul is telling us to go and do likewise. And it sounds simple. Wouldn't it be nice if it were that easy? Imitate God. How? By loving others as Christ loved us. He's saying to you and I, love one another just as Christ loved you. And what Paul is presenting here is one of the most challenging things that we will receive in, returns, in terms of an exhortation from God's word. First, love even when we don't feel it. It's very difficult, very hard for us to do. And secondly, if you can get past the first, sacrifice or give something up we value in order to love others. You see, that's the really challenging part. First off, Paul is telling us to love one another in the body of Christ, not because we feel love, but because we are commanded to love. Now this, of course, goes against everything the world has taught us. And generally speaking, most of us grew up, you know, in, 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 where the world just seeped in. It didn't matter if you grew up in a Christian home. The world just had its way of kind of just tainting things here and there. And we learn things from the world. And what the world teaches us, what the world wants us to believe, is that love is a feeling. And when that feeling is gone, what are we going to do, right? It's like, what do you want me to do? You know, I, I don't feel love anymore. I don't love them. What happens now? How am I supposed to follow the command of love when I don't feel love? <clears throat> You see, all these arguments come from what we learn in the world, that love is a feeling. And what we need to understand here is love is a determination of the will that comes from obedience to God who commands us to love. This command is reiterated in 1 John chapter 3, as John wrote it down. Now this is his command, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. And second of all, Love one another. Again, the scripture says, this is his command. That we first of all believe in the name of Jesus Christ, his son. And second of all, love one another. That command is repeated at the beginning and at the end. And we must love just that way. I imagine to some people this may sound extreme. And it does, as again, we're taught so much from the world that love is nothing more than a feeling. A fleshly desire or a selfish need. What we find difficult about loving the way Jesus loved is that it has to do with the whole idea of how he loved, and that was sacrificially. Remember, Paul said, we're to love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Again, we come back to the idea of sacrificial love, which is an act of giving up something we value for the sake of someone or something else. If we don't really value it, it's not really much of a sacrifice, is it? You know, if, if I had a million dollars in the bank, which I don't, but if I had a million dollars in the bank and someone came up and said, hey, I need, I need $1,000, it's not much of a sacrifice, is it? It's just an offering. Sacrifice is what Jesus did for us on the cross, and it's what he commands us to do for others. Sacrificial love. Now, it seems that God is really interfering with our lives here because he's not only commanding us to love, but he's also telling us to give up something we value in order to do it. How easy is it to give up things that we care about, you know, sacrifice, 
you know, when we love the person. When Ashley and I were first dating, this was probably two years after I got out of the military. I was working part-time for a tree company, uh, and at night I was working for a restaurant up in North Carolina. Now, I, broke would have been an upgrade to my financial situation. I, I mean, I had no money. Ashley's not a materialistic person. She never was. But on the weekends when I'd come and visit, I would want to take her out to nice dinners. I would, you know, roadhouse or to the movies or something. And I would sacrifice every little bit of extra money I had. I would live off ramen noodles and, and hot dogs and maybe a loaf of bread and a packet of ketchup for the week just so I could show her how much I adored her and cared about her and what she meant to me. Now, if you'd asked me to take that same hard-earned money and do that for somebody I didn't care about or have those feelings for, it would have been a different equation. And, and, and I understand this is a different kind of thing, but it's what we're talking about is refers to loving people in a sacrificial kind of way, giving of ourselves. Let us be reminded of what Jesus said to this from the Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew 5, beginning at verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. What Jesus is talking about here, he's talking about showing that kind of love that doesn't come naturally. He says, even tax collectors love people. When we love somebody, we love loving them. We don't like somebody, let's be honest, we don't love loving them, do we? In fact, we pretty much want to do anything or go out of our way to do nothing for them. It's very difficult to be around those that maybe don't even show you love back. So what Jesus is saying in this particular passage is that we need to love those people who we even consider to be our enemies, people who may be even actively hurting us in our lives because it's a sacrifice. On the surface, it seems like loving others out of obedience may be the inferior, inferior kind of love. But I believe loving others because we've been commanded to love is not inferior, inferior at all. In fact, I believe it to be the superior form of love. This is where we forget and fail at times along those lines about love. This is why we struggle with the idea of loving because we become, we've been commanded to love. We often forget about putting God in that equation. God comes along and says to us, I want you to love this person. And we say, but Lord, I don't love them. God knows this because he can see our hearts. He wants us to step out in obedience and act lovingly towards others. What we forget is that we must set our minds and our wills to obey God and love towards others even when we don't feel it. We need to remember that even when we might be feeling the opposite, <clears throat> God meets us there at that place of our obedience in ways that we can hardly understand. You know, and, and it came up 
a few Wednesday nights ago uh, after we had gone off air in discussion, and it was uh, kind of, uh, it just caught me off guard because it was brought up, but it's something I wanted to share in the sermon this morning. But it's a story of a woman, her name is Corey Ten Boom. And if you're not familiar with who this woman was, she was imprisoned by the Nazis during World War II for harboring Jews in occupied Holland. Um, when her and her family were found out, her sister and her were taken off to Ravensbrück concentration camp one way, and her father was taken another, and they were never to see him again. Her sister Betsy um, had passed away in this concentration camp, but through a clerical error, uh, Corey was released a week before every woman there was executed. So World War II ended in 1945, and I'm going to read a passage or an excerpt from her book, but it's telling a story that happened about two years after that, and, and I think it really beautifully illustrates what we're talking about this morning. And again, this is from Corey's book. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him. A balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat. A brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the doors at the rear. It was 1947. I had come from Holland to defeat a Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in a bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's heart. I like to think that's where forgiving sins were thrown when we confessed our sins to God. I give them to God and ask them, them to be cast in the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People simply stood up in silence, and silence collected their coats, and in silence left the room. And that's when I saw him walking his way forward against the others. One moment when I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next, the blue uniform with the visor capped and its swastika, and it all came back with a rush. That huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the room, the shame of walking naked past this man, I could see my sister's frail ribs ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath her parchment skin. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fräulein. How good is it to know you say all of our sins are at the bottom of the sea? And I, who had just spoken unforgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me. Of course, how could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him in the leather crop swinging from his belt. I was face to face with one of my captors, and my blood froze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there, but since that time I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I'd like to hear from your lips as well, Fräulein. Again, the hand came out. 
Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I whose sins had again and again been forgiven and could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed like hours. As I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience since the end of the war. I had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able to also return to the outside world and rebuild their lives no matter the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that, and still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Help, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. Lord, you simply supply the rest. And so mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out. And as I did so, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder and raced down my arm and sprang into our joint hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother. I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did that day. So I share this because it demonstrates two things we've been talking about this morning. That what we find so hard about loving others, and that is the commandment of love, or the commandment to love, when there are no feelings associated, or when the feelings are as negative as they were in Corey's case. But then sacrificing something very dear to us. And again, with Corey, she was, you know, in worldly terms, had every worldly reason to be bitter towards this man, to hate him with all her heart. And nobody would have condemned her. I mean, she was in Ravensbrück, a German concentration camp. She had every single right to hate every single person who abused her, her sister, and the other women there. Yet she knew she had a commandment from the Lord. She knew that from helping people in Holland who had been brutalized by the Nazis, when you don't forgive, you don't heal. She had been willing to lay all of that down, all the horrible memories, all the horrible emotions. She had to sacrifice. In that moment, she let go, and she let God. And Corey had to be willing to sacrifice her justification for bitterness. It's one thing to have bitterness, but she had to be willing to set it aside and lay it down and say, Lord, I'm giving this to you. I'm going to obey you instead of tending this hor- horrible resentment. This was her sacrifice as she even admitted what went through her mind in those moments that seemed like hours. She was willing to sacrifice those feelings. I often wonder how many Christians are still captive to the past and to feelings, to hurt former offenses are they unwilling to sacrifice those things and lay them down in obedience to the Lord are they unwilling to forgive themselves I want to invite the band to the stage to close this in worship but before as I do um, 
I'm going to share 1 John uh, chapter 3, verse 14 through 16. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters. The one who does not love remains in death. Everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our life for our brothers and sisters. Again, that's the sacrifice we're talking about this morning. That's what Corey did that day when she laid down her life and put her emotions, her feelings aside. And that's the sacrifice and the thing we're talking about. Something we value in obedience to God. God has given us in his word the importance of love and forgiveness. We have to be very careful about how we're being influenced, by whom we're being influenced, and by whom we're receiving input from. So who are we imitating this morning? Are we imitating the world or are we imitating Christ? What is having the greatest impact on our lives? Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, your truth. We thank you for the ability to share testimonies to do nothing less than glorify your name. Lord, it's my prayer that if there's anybody here this morning or listening or far that haven't come to know your love through the sacrifice of your son, Jesus, that your spirit would just work on their hearts and they would feel that conviction and come to know you. Lord, forgive us where we fail you and love us when often at times we seem unlovable. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Stand and let us worship.